This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Carson McCullers from 1941 called The Jockey. It was Sylvester who first saw The Jockey. He looked away quickly, put down his whiskey glass, and nervously mashed the tip of his red nose with his thumb. The Jockey was chosen by Karen Russell, two of whose stories have appeared in The New Yorker. Her book of short stories, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, came out in 2006. Hi, Karen. Hi, Deborah. So Carson McCullers is often described as a Southern Gothic writer. Now, this story that you're reading is not set in the South and is not Gothic at all. Do you think that that's a fair category to put her in? I was just talking with a friend about how we're never sure what people mean exactly when they say <laughs> Southern Gothic writer. Yeah. And, and just our ideas about Gothic are like haunted castles, which doesn't seem to conform anyway to the Kentucky Derby Southern climb. So I... I think when people categorize her that way, they're touching on the darkness inside her humor. And I do think that you can feel that in this story. Think of that sort of twisted Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, I really feel there's a character. huge... I love Flannery O'Connor, too. She's another of my favorite writers. And I think that um, they share this vision. A few people have tried to apply that to my work, too, and I'm never sure. They've called you Southern Gothic? I think just because <laughs> I think people, if you're anywhere you know, below the Mason-Dixon line, that you're going to get that. But yeah, I, do, I think that there's some sort of like really something unflinching about her vision. And then there's there's humor that runs through it. But I think it's um, there's a darkness there definitely that you can feel here too, even in the sort of lighter, more comic, almost cartoony moments. Do you remember when you first read McCullers? Yeah, she was one of the first adult novels that I read, which is I think why I love her. My mom had given me The Heart as a Lonely Hunter. And it, it just happened to be at a time where um, I was the same age as Mick who's one of the protagonists. She's this sort of like weird tomboy adolescent. And I, I just remember loving this idea that even though it's sort of like a sleepy town, not a lot happens in the plot of the story, you have access to the these interior lives of all these characters. And that was the first time I think in my reading life I got you know access to both sort of like the exterior and the interior of a character. So you could see sort of, you know, that gulf between what was being said and what the character was thinking or feeling. And I loved that about that book. How old were you then? Maybe 13, 12 or 13. Wow. Yeah. You call it an adult novel, which of course it is. But at the same time, it was written when she was, I mean, it came out when McCullers was 22. Can you believe that? Um, Isn't that so, kind of irritating? <laughs> <laughs> at an age when, when, you know, we don't even really call people adults. But they're still students. <laughs> I was stunned by that. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually didn't know that until sort of recently. Oprah chose the book. You know, and then I had that like kind of middle school, like I loved it first, right. <laughs> which yeah, is yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah, I had no idea that she was so young when she wrote that because it feels like such a mature work. The story, The Jockey, came out a couple of years later. She was 24. By that point, she'd published The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which was a bestseller. She had married and was already getting divorced. Apparently, she she finally decided to ask for divorce when her husband, Reeves McCullers, forged her signature on the check she got from the New Yorker for this story. <laughs> and that was just the last straw. He took her money. So this story is set in Saratoga Springs during horse racing season. Is there anything else that you think we should be listening for or know before you read it? You know what really struck me or what I, what I so loved going back are just, um, just the clarity of her details and also just the aggression, just the coded aggression here. There's a sort of this superficial order and then and then just the emotion seething right underneath it. I, really, I love that about her work. We'll talk more about the story and about Carson McCullers after the reading. Now here's Karen Russell reading The Jockey. 
The jockey came to the doorway of the dining room, then after a moment stepped to one side and stood motionless, with his back to the wall. The room was crowded, as this was the third day of the season, and all the hotels in the town were full. In the dining room, bouquets of August roses scattered their petals on the white table linen, and from the adjoining bar came a warm, drunken wash of voices. The jockey waited with his back to the wall and scrutinized the room with pinched, crepey eyes. He examined the room until at last his eyes reached a table in a corner diagonally across from him, at which three men were sitting. As he watched, the jockey raised his chin and tilted his head back to one side. His dwarfed body grew rigid, and his hands stiffened so that the fingers curled inward like gray claws. Tense against the wall of the dining room, he watched and waited in this way. He was wearing a suit of green Chinese silk that evening, tailored precisely in the size of a costume outfit for a child. The shirt was yellow, the tie striped with pastel colors. He had no hat with him and wore his hair brushed down in a stiff wet bang on his forehead. His face was drawn, ageless and gray. There were shadowed hollows at his temples and his mouth was set in a wiry smile. After a time, he was aware that he'd been seen by one of the three men he had been watching. But the jockey did not nod. He only raised his chin still higher and hooked the thumb of his tense hand in the pocket of his coat. The three men at the corner table were a trainer, a bookie, and a rich man. The trainer was Sylvester, a large, loosely built fellow with a flushed nose and slow, blue eyes. The bookie was Simmons. The rich man was the owner of a horse named Seltzer, which the jockey had ridden that afternoon. The three of them drank whiskey with soda, and a white-coated waiter had just brought on the main course of the dinner. It was Sylvester who first saw the jockey. He looked away quickly, put down his whiskey glass, and nervously mashed the tip of his red nose with his thumb. It's Bitsy Barlow, he said, standing over there across the room, just watching us. Oh, the jockey, said the rich man. He was facing the wall, and he half turned his head to look behind him. Ask him over. God, no, Sylvester said. He's crazy, Simmons said. The bookie's voice was flat and without inflection. He had the face of a born gambler, carefully adjusted, the expression a permanent deadlock between fear and greed. Well, I wouldn't call him that exactly, said Sylvester. I've known him a long time. He was okay until about six months ago. But if he goes on like this, I can't see him lasting out another year. I just can't. It was what happened in Miami, said Simmons. What? asked the rich man. Sylvester glanced across the room at the jockey and wet the corner of his mouth with his red, fleshy tongue. A accident. A kid got hurt on the track, broke a leg and hip. He was a particular pal of Bitsy's, a Irish kid. Not a bad rider, either. That's a pity, said the rich man. Yeah. They were particular friends, Sylvester said. You would always find him up in Bitsy's hotel room. They would be playing rummy or else lying on the floor reading the sports page together. Well, those things happen, said the rich man. Simmons cut into his beefsteak. He held his fork prongs downward on the plate and carefully piled on mushrooms with the blade of his knife. He's crazy, he repeated. He gives me the creeps. All the tables in the dining room were occupied. 
There was a party at the banquet table in the center, and green-white August moths had found their way in from the night and fluttered around the clear candle flames. Two girls wearing flannel slacks and blazers walked arm-in-arm across the room from the bar. From the main street outside came the echoes of holiday hysteria. They claim that in August, Saratoga is the wealthiest town per capita in the world. Sylvester turned to the rich man. What do you think? I wouldn't know, said the rich man. It may very well be so. Daintily, Simmons wiped his greasy mouth with the tip of his forefinger. How about Hollywood and Wall Street? Wait, said Sylvester. He's decided to come over here. The jockey had left the wall and was approaching the table in the corner. He walked with a prim strut, swinging out his legs in a half-circle with each step, his heels biting smartly into the red velvet carpet on the floor. On the way over, he brushed against the elbow of a fat woman in white satin at the banquet table. He stepped back and bowed with dandified courtesy, his eyes quite closed. When he had crossed the room, he drew up a chair and sat at the corner of the table, between Sylvester and the rich man, without a nod of greeting or a change in his set gray face. Had dinner? Sylvester asked. Some people might call it that. The jockey's voice was high, bitter, clear. Sylvester put his knife and fork down carefully on his plate. The rich man shifted his position, turning sidewise in his chair and crossing his legs. He was dressed in twill riding pants, unpolished boots, and a shabby brown jacket. This was his outfit day and night in the racing season, although he was never seen on a horse. Simmons went on with his dinner. Like a spot of seltzer water? asked Sylvester. Or something like that? The jockey didn't answer. He drew a gold cigarette case from his pocket and snapped it open. Inside were a few cigarettes and a tiny gold penknife. He used the knife to cut a cigarette in half. When he had lighted his smoke, he held up his hand to a waiter passing by the table. Kentucky bourbon, please. Now listen, kid, said Sylvester. Don't kid me. Be reasonable. You know you got to behave reasonable. The jockey drew up the left corner of his mouth in a stiff jeer. His eyes lowered to the food spread out on the table, but instantly he looked up again. Before the rich man was a fish casserole baked in a cream sauce and garnished with parsley. Sylvester had ordered eggs benedict. There was asparagus, fresh buttered corn, and a side dish of wet black olives. A plate of French fried potatoes was in the corner of the table before the jockey. He didn't look at the food again, but kept his pinched eyes on the centerpiece of full-blown lavender roses. I don't suppose you remember a certain person by the name of Maguire, he said. Now listen, said Sylvester. The waiter brought the whiskey and the jockey sat fondling the glass with his small, strong, calloused hands. On his wrist was a gold link bracelet that clinked against the table edge. After turning the glass between his palms, the jockey suddenly drank the whiskey neat in two hard swallows. He sat down the glass sharply. No, I don't suppose your memory is that long and extensive, he said. Sure enough, Bitsy, said Sylvester. What makes you act like this? You hear from the kid today? I received a letter, the jockey said. The certain person we were speaking about was taken out from the cast on Wednesday. One leg is two inches shorter than the other one, that's all. Sylvester clucked his tongue and shook his head. I realize how you feel. Do you? 
The jockey was looking at the dishes on the table. His gaze passed from the fish casserole to the corn and finally fixed on the plate of fried potatoes. His face tightened and quickly he looked up again. A rose shattered and he picked up one of the petals, bruised it between his thumb and forefinger, and put it in his mouth. Well, those things happen, said the rich man. The trainer and the book he had finished eating, but there was food left on the serving dishes before their plates. The rich man dipped his buttery fingers in his water glass and wiped them with his napkin. Well, said the jockey, doesn't somebody want me to pass them something? Or maybe perhaps you desire to reorder. Another hunk of beefsteak, gentlemen, or... Please, said Sylvester, be reasonable. Why don't you go on upstairs? Yes, why don't I, the jockey said. His prim voice had risen higher, and there was about it the sharp whine of hysteria. Why don't I go up to my goddamn room and walk around and write some letters and go to bed like a good boy? Why don't I just... He pushed his chair back and got up. Oh, foo, he said. Foo to you. I want a drink. All I can say is it's your funeral, said Sylvester. You know what it does to you. You know well enough. The jockey crossed the dining room and went into the bar. He ordered a Manhattan, and Sylvester watched him stand with his heels pressed tight together, his body hard as a lead soldier's, holding his little finger out from the cocktail glass and sipping the drink slowly. He's crazy, said Simmons. Like I said. Sylvester turned to the rich man. If he eats a lamb chop, you can see the shape of it in his stomach an hour afterward. He can't sweat things out of him anymore. He's a hundred and twelve and a half. He has gained three pounds since we left Miami. A jockey shouldn't drink, said the rich man. The food don't satisfy him like it used to, and he can't sweat it out. If he eats a lamb chop, you can watch it tooching out in his stomach, and it don't go down. The jockey finished his Manhattan. He swallowed, crushed the cherry in the bottom of the glass with his thumb, then pushed the glass away from him. The two girls in blazers were standing at his left, their faces turned toward each other, and at the other end of the bar, two touts had started an argument about which was the highest mountain in the world. Everyone was with somebody else. There was no other person drinking alone that night. The jockey paid with a brand new $50 bill, and he didn't count the change. He walked back to the dining room and to the table at which the three men were sitting, but he did not sit down. No, I wouldn't presume to think your memory is that extensive, he said. He was so small that the edge of the tabletop reached almost to his belt, and when he gripped the corner with his wiry hands, he didn't have to stoop. No, you're too busy gobbling up dinners and dining rooms. You're too... Honestly, begged Sylvester, you got to behave reasonable. Reasonable! Reasonable! The jockey's gray face quivered, then set in a mean, frozen grin. He shook the table so that the plates rattled, and for a moment it seemed that he would push it over. But suddenly he stopped. His hand reached out toward the plate nearest to him, and deliberately he put a few of the french-fried potatoes in his mouth. He chewed slowly, his upper lip raised. Then he turned and spat out the pulpy mouthful on the smooth red carpet which covered the floor. Libertines, he said and his voice was thin and broken. He rolled the word in his mouth as though it had a flavor and a substance that gratified him. You libertines, he said again, 
and turned and walked with his rigid swagger out of the dining room. Sylvester shrugged one of his loose, heavy shoulders. The rich man sopped up some water that had been spilled on the tablecloth, and they didn't speak until the waiter came to clear away. That was Karen Russell reading Carson McCullers' story, The Jockey, which is included in her collected stories. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Karen, what's going on with Bitsy here? Does he think that the bookie and the trainer and the rich man are to blame for McGuire's injury? Does he just want acknowledgement of some kind? Does he think they should be paying compensation? What, why is he linking these two things? I think it has something to do with all of that. I think there's some sort of profound humiliation that's propelling him across the room towards them. It almost reads, you know, just because they're these types, right? It, it reads like a parable or something. The rich man, the, rich the man, trainer. The, and the trainer. <laughs> right. Even just the syntax that they're presented in, you know, the rich man never gets a name, but he owns the horse seltzer that the jockey rides. It's such a peculiar way to identify him. So I think somehow they represent the whole order that's, that's impinging on this jockey's integrity that he feels is responsible for his friend's injury. And I, I, do, I do think that he holds each of them responsible as representatives of, of this order. And I think that you're right. I think part of it, too, is just he wants to show up in that mirror. You know, he can feel, you know, his, his, his fear is sort of like fists on a window. I, I wanted to do it in the reading. It's impossible. You, you can imagine reasonable, reasonable, like if I was, you know, some Oscar award winner, uh, <laughs> very tiny Oscar award winner needs to do that voice because you can feel that rising frustration and sort of like how seamless the screen of these other men is. It's funny. It's It's sort of like a David and Goliath story gone wrong. You know, you keep <laughs> yes. waiting for him to, right. to fell them. But right. nothing he does 
in the end has any effect. He can't get to them at all. Even when he spits, he spits on the floor. He doesn't spit on them. And the, the waiter, who's the only person who's less respected than him right. in the room, is the one who has to clean it up. We also have this great irony, which is, you know, the little guy in the battle is really a little guy. <laughs> He's actually a little guy. You know, I was thinking if this story was in workshop or something, you know, everyone would be like, um, it's really melodramatic. And it's pretty obvious, the color symbolism, you know, because he's wearing this, like, green suit. And it just sort of, you have this really visual idea of him as, like, an emblem of just squeezed out. Yeah, and and so much of the story, for me, works with with these gestures. I mean, we were talking about the way she does interiors earlier. There's no interiority in this story whatsoever, really. You're sort of just watching the point of view so strange in that way. And the idea of this lamb chop, I mean, it's kind of, again, cartoony, but this lamb chop perfectly outlined. You <laughs> so know? he had swallowed a lamb chop whole and it's right. sort of you know, there just with the, the bones yeah, sticking yes, out of his belly. The, the swallowed bones that yeah, feels yeah. just so central. Definitely, definitely image. seems cartoonish, that, right. that one image. I mean, what, what she's so good at here is getting these sort of nuances of class. And the fact that the jockey who is in the, the lower caste here dresses himself up in a silk suit with a tie and, you know, mm-hmm. all this... And you get the rich man who's put on some, like, shabby boots. He's trying to look like a jockey. Right. And trying not to look rich. Right. She's so good with this sort of level of, of social observation and, and detail. Oh, yeah. And I think she's so great at just letting, trusting the reader to apprehend those details. So when, when we see that the man's going to pay with a $50 bill and he doesn't count the change, mm-hmm. you know, that tells us everything we need to know sort of about yeah. where he's at emotionally there. And I love, there are all these little, like, grenades in the story, you know? I mean, you start the clock, what a weird kind of suspense where you're like, a man is going to cross the carpet to these other men. Like, that seems a little, right, anticlimactic, you know, from the the moment you enter the story. You're waiting for that to happen. And then there's so much sort of little, you know, tiny bombs that go off. He crushes the cherry. There's that sort of, like, very sad climax where he just expectorates on the rug. (laughs) (laughs) Just And I think anyone who's ever felt that particular kind of rage, the helplessness of that, the sort of shame of that when it fails to affect any change. And what's going on with Bitsy and McGuire? Are they just friends? Are we supposed to assume perhaps that they're lovers? Isn't that Th- There's sort of that weird? funny image of them lying <laughs> like together lying on, on the floor. Lying on their like schoolgirls or something. Um, I know that it's a little... It's, it I, seems sort of ambiguous to me. I mean, maybe Bitsy's had a personal loss. He's lost his lover or his best friend. Or maybe he's just outraged about the sort of injustice of the whole situation. Right. Yeah, or maybe like jockey intimacy is a is an unexplored uh, <laughs> subject for, for future writers. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. My inclination is that they're just buds. I yeah. think they're just pals. And I'm sure whatever intimacy has been forged in sort of this underworld, this, these people are part of the underclass, as you mentioned. And those are the characters that McCullers is drawn to, is these sort of these underdogs, these He's, very, very lonely people who are unable to communicate whether they're deaf-mute, like in Heart is a Lonely Hunter, or whether they're just simply not going to be heard because they're poor or little or, you know, whatever else. That's where she just digs in and speaks for those characters, which is wonderful. I wonder what's going on with the food here, too. This It's almost a parody, this image of these three guys at the table with the dishes of cream and butter, oh, and they're wiping it off their yeah. fingers. His buttery fingers in the water, right? There's sort of such an ooze about all of those They're details. just oozing butter and cream. And then Bitsy puts a rose petal in his mouth. And what is that? Oh, I love that. Isn't that <laughs> strange? I mean, that's another sort of little, like, detonation that happens. I mean, the rose shattered. I mean, some of this language could be perceived maybe as a little, like, overblown, right? Mm-hmm. But I am um, somehow, I think, in the context, just whatever sort of parabell-like 
you know, atmosphere she's created, I think it really works. And why can't he eat? I mean, he's sort of, he's going to waste away. There's going to be nothing left of him if all he eats is rose petals. And when he right. tries to eat a french fry, he has to spit it out. She writes so well about that kind of just like spiritual hunger, spiritual loneliness, you know. And the idea of this this tiny person whose profession or just his station in life, you know, in, in order to, to make an income, he can't digest these things. Obviously, it's working on the literal level of the story. But to have a man put a rose petal in his mouth, you know, to have him put this rich food into his mouth and then spit it onto a velvet carpet and, and be actually incapable of gleaning any kind of nutrition from it. I don't know. There's yeah. something really so sad to me about that. Do you think the three men are in any way affected by this other than just wanting the situation to be over? No, they're sort of like cartoons in that way, too, a little bit. You know, Simmons continued eating his meal. Just... Well, they're silent. There's, there's, right, a, there's that. Right. Whether he's had some impact or not is not clear. I think, yeah, and I think that's the part of the pain of the story that, that comes through so clearly is he, he, too, is being dismissed as this type. He's being crazy. He's unreasonable. He's dismissed as a drunk before he's even had a sip of alcohol. You get a sense of... of McCullers identifying in some way with his physical deformity. You know, his mm-hmm. sort of hands are like claws. He's all gray. He's tiny. And you think of McCullers, who had all of these strokes as a very young woman. She was completely paralyzed on one side right. by 30 or 31. There's a sense of her sort of creeping inside this body in a way and, and sensing what it would be like to be deformed in this way. Oh, you know what was so... I didn't realize this, but when I but to prepare for the podcast, I was reading a bit. And I guess that she, like Mick in um, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter was a concert pianist and just loved the piano. That was her first love. And then developed a kind of like rheumatism. I hope I'm getting this right. I don't want to get roughed up by Carson biographers um, <laughs> outside the studio. But I guess she yeah, she developed a kind of rheumatism. And so that image of his tense hand, like just working in the pocket and the, the talon-like aspect of it, I mean, that you can imagine sort of just the betrayal of her own body, you know, the way her yeah. ambition failed inside her body when this happened. The other story with that was that she was going to Juilliard and on the way to Juilliard, managed to lose the money that she had for her tuition. Oh. And so she never went. So that was did she, I mean, did she just, like, lose it, like, on the clear. street? She lost did the she money. Lose it at I don't think she lost wheel? it at the track. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> she ended up doing sort of menial jobs and, and uh, writing instead. I did not know that about her bad news husband, Reese. Yeah, it it was one of those explosive marriages, from what I've read, where they divorced and then they remarried later, and then he tried to get her to kill herself with him. And she didn't do oh. it, and then he killed himself. So. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah, that's, not, yeah. that's no good. Um, they both were, were having homosexual affairs at the same time. It was, it's a very complicated situation. And and you really you sense some of what must have been her isolation in right. almost all of her characters, and particularly here, just the, the little guy railing at the world and unable to communicate. Which, right, which seems right. very universal with her work. Unable to even sort of make a thumbprint on the, on, you know, in like a vampire where he doesn't even show up in anyone's mirror here, really. He's absolutely defined by the fact that he rides this horse named Seltzer, you know? I mean, that, <laughs> and his like, name is Bitsy. The, right, right. <laughs> Could it be any more demeaning? <laughs> he's, just, he's just a little bit. So much for his um, right, presidential candidacy. It's Bitsy Barlow. What else is he going to do? Yeah. Well, thank you, Karen. Thanks, Deborah. Karen Russell is the author of St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, which is out in paperback from Vintage. Her novel, Swamplandia, will be published next year. You can read one of her stories on our website, newyorker.com. Another story is available online to New Yorker subscribers. Everyone can subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. 
The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 